Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Nate Persily. He's the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. He's also the co-director of the Stanford Project on Democracy and the Internet. He's a nationally recognized constitutional expert. He served as the senior research director for the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which looked at the 2012 election a special master or court-appointed expert to craft congressional legislative districting plans in six states, the most recent of which, which got a great deal of publicity, was the one he drew for Pennsylvania. <laughs> I didn't think we could get by that without applause. <laughs> He's a leading authority on the impact of technology on political communication, campaigns, and election administration. And the seminar he'll lead today is entitled, Can Democracy Survive the Internet? Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Um, I wear many different hats in talking about this topic and in my, my daily life. I'm a law professor, a political scientist, and also a practitioner in this area. Uh, and so you, I often say that you can tell when I'm being a law professor because I have opinions without data. You can, you can tell when I'm a political scientist because I have data without opinions. Uh, and you can tell when I'm a lawyer because, well, it depends what my client says. So uh, I, in this area of the law of democracy, um, I've you know, been involved in all kinds of different disputes and, and areas from voting rights to campaign finance to redistricting, uh, election administration, and the like. Um, what I'm here to talk about today is the impact of the internet on democracy. And the way I got involved in this topic was through sort of two areas that, that I've done a lot of work in. One is on uh, researching the rise of political polarization in this country and elsewhere. And the other is on uh, campaign finance. And so uh, my sort of intervention originally came with the much maligned Supreme Court decision in Citizens United versus FEC, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, that case, um, at the time that it came uh, to the Supreme Court um, and, and when the Supreme Court issued its decision, it was regarded and, and covered principally as an example of how the court had given personal rights to corporations, right? You may remember that, that case, uh, at least the way it was advertised afterwards, was this was essentially treating corporations just like normal individual speakers um, because they uh, now had the unfettered First Amendment right to spend as much money as they wanted on political campaigns. The case, though, you, you, you would be forgiven for thinking that this was a case about political advertising, um, but actually uh, it was a case about this nonprofit corporation called Citizens United that made a movie called uh, Hillary the Movie that it put on uh, on-demand programming, sort of like HBO on-demand or something like that if you were to down, and, and, it, uh, and you would, uh, anyone could download that movie. And uh, while the, the commentary of it was about sort of treating this as, as if it was liberating corporations like you know, General Motors or Microsoft or something to uh, uh, have this unfettered constitutional right to, to craft political advertisement, uh, really, what the case was about, at least the way I saw it at the time, was about the changing telecommunication revolution and what this meant for politics. OK, 
Okay, now this is many years ago, right? Before we're talking about Twitter, before we're talking about fake news and the like. And, and so I had written a piece, I think that's been circulated to you about um, whether the campaign revolution will be televised, right? Um, because that case, uh, if, you, if you paid attention to what was going on in the case, uh, really, uh, I'll give you an example of what happened in the oral argument. There was a question that, that came from Justice Kennedy to the, um, to the lawyers in the case for the government, and he asked them at one point, he said, well, look, you're, the government's position here is that um, you can ban corporations from spending money on political advertising. And he said, well, why doesn't that mean that you can then ban them from publishing a book, right? Because if they don't have the right to speak on in television, why would they have the right to uh, uh, publish a book, Hillary the book instead of Hillary the movie, right? And the, the lawyer sort of goes back and forth and says, well, that's, this case is not about books, it's about television, right? It's a, it's a, and, and they said, well, we understand that. And Chief Justice Roberts comes in and says, yeah, we understand, but what's the government's position? Does the First Amendment, right, does free speech law allow you to ban corporations from spending money on books? And again, he tries to get out of it. He's like, well, there might be a press exception. There might be, the Chief Justice Roberts, you know, uh, cuts to the chase. He says, what's the government position here? Can you ban corporations from publishing books in, related to political campaigns. And the acting solicitor general sort of sits back and says, yes. And there's an audible intake of air in the Supreme Court. Uh, and when I teach this case to my students in my First Amendment class, I say, if you learn nothing during this semester, at least don't go before the Supreme Court and be on the side of book banning, right? Because <laughs> it's like, because that, from that admission, then flows the entire, they actually ended up re-arguing the case. Elena Kagan, as Solicitor General, re-argued the case. And, um, and the rest is history. And, and as, you know, as it's seen in public consciousness, this is a case about um, uh, political advertising. But it really was also a case about the medium, right? How, what kinds of expression uh, are protected under the First Amendment. In fact, there's a great colloquy between Justice Kennedy and one of the lawyers where he says, wait a second, because when they start talking about books, he says, what about that new device, that Kindle thing, literally is what he says. He says, well, that's, that's kind of a book, right? But it's also, it's also a, a satellite communication, which is regulated by the law. Maybe that's actually um, uh, regulated under this statute, right? Because when we talk about the internet, right, or we talk about digital communication, all of these media are kind of mixing together, right? Within a few years, your television, your phone, and your PC are basically going to be the same device, right? And so, to the extent that our regulation of politics has been so predicated on television as being the coin of the realm when it comes to political communication, the internet was going to use a colloquial, you know, an overused colloquialism in, in Silicon Valley, was going to disrupt that, right? Now, at the time, when people were thinking about the disruptive potential of the internet, let's say eight years ago or so, ten years ago, in uh, thinking about politics, um, there was a kind of utopian vision as to what it would do, right? It would sort of empower the masses. It would, in, in sort of it's a famous case, Martin versus Struthers would put it, uh, it would help out the poorly financed causes of little people, right? That those who could not have access to the uh, media intermediaries would then be able to have access um, to you know, anyone who would listen to them through Twitter, YouTube, and the like. Right? And that's was, that was the book I was going to be writing, uh, was about uh, how uh, the, the internet was going to change uh, communication in, in politics, and, and as of 2014 or so, that was the theme. 
In comes the 2016 election campaign. And then if you start talking about the effect of the internet on democracy, you have to start talking about fake news. You have to start talking about bots, right? Com, you know, what we call computational propaganda, the use of machines and algorithms to spread uh, messages, right? You have to talk about echo chambers. So the topic is constantly evolving. Even now you've got to talk about Cambridge Analytica, right? And so uh, we've moved, we've sort of, the pendulum has now swung from a very sort of utopian vision of the internet and its potential for democracy to this dystopian uh, view of uh, the potential of the internet for democracy, not only in the United States, but around the world. Okay? And so the, the, where I have has sort of spent my time is thinking about, well, what are those unique features of the internet that pose challenges to democracy? Because it's wrong to think that, well, the problem is, say, fake news, because Fake news is as old as news, right? Hate speech is as old as speech, right? And the question is, well, what is it about the technology? What are the unique features of, of the internet that pose these challenges to popular sovereignty and democracy? And so that's what I'm gonna to talk to you uh, and discuss with you today. And so uh, I should start with really what I think the central problem is uh, that the internet is posing that we're realizing now that maybe we didn't know uh, so long ago. And that is, again, speaking as a law professor, right, a bedrock principle of free speech law in the United States, which is that we often think that the free, unregulated marketplace of ideas is the best test for truth. Right? And it's not clear that was ever true, but it's certainly not true in the internet age. Right? It's not the case that the more speech that there is, the more likely that truth is going to win out. Right? We can examine why that is. Second and related to that, to the extent we think democracy and the, the sort of conversation surrounding democracy is something that should be limited to humans who are nationals of a country, right? Maybe not citizens, but at least national, the na national conversation should be among the people uh, in the country. How do we reconcile that with a system, a technological uh, and communication ecosystem, which is, uh, allows for non-citizens, even foreign governments, and non-humans, bots, uh, to sometimes overwhelm the political conversation. And then related to both of those, those first two phenomena is a third, which is how does democracy survive under conditions where there's not widespread agreement on basic facts and there isn't minimal trust in institutions, right? And that's sort of where we are, um, or at least where, where we seem to be going, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. And I should add, to give the historical uh, sort of context that, that uh, was mentioned before, we shouldn't blame the, you know, just the internet for this loss of trust. We shouldn't blame it for polarization. There's been a uh, sort of monotonic increase in polarization over the last 40 years or so, depending on how you define it, right? It's not unique to the United States, right? We're seeing polarization around the world. We're seeing a decline in trust in institutions, not just political institutions, but religious institutions, economic, financial institutions, unions, the like. And so uh, we need to be careful in what we attribute to the internet uh, uh, versus long-term trends that we've seen in the United States and elsewhere. And we can talk a little bit about what, what might be engines of those po that polarization. Nevertheless, I think it's extremely important that we focus on the unique features of this new technology and the threats that it poses to, to democracy. And so let me rattle some off to you. So the first sort of is a family of problems called the three V's, which is velocity, virality, and volume, okay? The speed at which information travels, 
the fact that it's done through peer-to-peer -peer communication as, as opposed to intermediaries, and the sheer amount of information that is available to all of us. Now, on this question of the speed of information traveling, uh, if you look on the internet, you know, you'll see this quote, um, right? Uh, a lie makes its way halfway around the world before the truth can put its boots on. Have you heard that one? If you look on the internet, it's attributed to Mark Twain in 1917. Turns out Mark Twain was dead by 1917, so that's just an example of fake news that's out there. But, but, um, but there's something to it, right? Which is that um, it is impossible to uh, uh, sort of for the truth to compete against an avalanche of lies, especially when um, they achieve a level of virality that um, uh, goes around the world and goes around so quickly. The virality point is a critical one, and in many ways it's the defining feature of the internet, also the sort of liberation theology of the internet, which is that you don't have Walter Cronkite telling you it's just the way it is, right, at the end of a broadcast. Uh, in fact, no one has that authority these days as, as he did back then. Um, and so that, that system marginalized certain communities. Certain communities couldn't get their voice heard, right? All kinds of issues were, were probably not on the table. But that had a moderating function in many other ways, right? And so whether you know, it's extremists on the left or extremists on the right, um, they would be uh, filtered out of the national conversation because they couldn't get an audience through uh, the mass media gatekeepers. That's also true for political parties and their leaders who were much stronger uh, back then as well. And so with this lack of intermediation, uh, then you have sort of the uh, uh, popularity and virality being the coin of the political realm. And that's important because that phenomenon, that test for political communication, favors some kinds of messages, some kinds of candidates, and some kinds of emotional appeals over others. Right? We know that viral communication um, that, that the types of messages that gain that level of virality are the ones that appeal to emotion, appeal to outrage, right? Uh, um, you know, hate, love as well, you know, but, but, but hate and outrage uh, uh, get, get viral uh, traction. And then the sheer volume of communication, right, which it requires that there be some organizing uh, uh, force on the internet. And then I'll talk about that later with respect to the power of the platforms, right? because there needs to be some way for you to navigate all of the information that comes, uh, comes at you online, and often that means either through Facebook, Twitter, um, um, YouTube, Google, and the like. All right, so what else are unique features that the, this technology um, uh, sort of poses for the functioning of a democracy? Another one is the power of anonymity and the fact that anonymous speakers now have a megaphone that they've never had in American history. Now, anonymity is protected under the First Amendment, right? There are great cases about the NAACP not being forced to turn over its mem membership lists, right? Or, uh, you know, Thomas Paine and anonymous pamphleteers. Even the Federalist Papers, right? You know, poop were written by Publius, right? We know it's Hamilton, uh, uh, Madison, and Jay who, who did it, but not at the time. You've seen the play, right? You know, so, uh, uh, and so uh, an anonymous speech is constitutionally protected. However, with the protection that anonymity gives you online and the megaphone that anonymous speakers now have to speak essentially to the entire world, come two very important problems and, and, and threatening problems for democracy. One is the bot problem, OK? 
okay? And the, when we say the bot problem, we're talking about the inability of you as a viewer to be able to distinguish between what's human and what's not. And that's gonna be an increasingly challenging problem for us as, as the computers get even more human-like in the way that they present information, right? And so we know, for example, right, that 10 to 15% of accounts that are on Twitter are bots, right? Almost 40% of the Twitter accounts in Russia are bots. The president has retweeted bots over 150 times, right? And so this, and these are machines that are essentially there to um, uh, repeat or generate messages and do all kinds of other things as well. Uh, and that is, again, that's not something that we had in the pre-internet age, right? If you, again, focusing on the things that are unique to this technology and, and, and the threat they pose to democracy. Related to that is the kind of hate speech problem on the internet, which is the rise of unaccountable speech, right? Because if you can remain anonymous, then you're not going to be um, responsible for your actions, uh, you, you will not be uh, accountable. Um, there's actually an interesting debate as to whether hate speech as a general rule has been going up online or not. There's some good research to say that maybe it's been staying about the same. Nevertheless, uh, and this feeds into the next phenomenon of echo chambers and what we call homophily, sort of the finding of like-minded uh, uh, people online. Nevertheless, we know that you, know, you are able uh, you know, if you want to be a member of a hate group, you can essentially become that and find uh, uh, colleagues um, from your living room, right? You don't have to go to a rally. You don't have to uh, uh, do what you had to do in the pre-internet age. You can go to places like 4chan and Reddit and um, these other sort of dark cauldrons of the internet to find like-minded um, uh, people who are racist, misogynist, and the like, right? But it both allows you to engage in unaccountable speech across so many different domains, uh, the anonymity does, and the ability to find self-selected um, uh, groups online is, is different than in a system in which there's a lot of geographic friction, right, where it's going to be difficult for you to find like-minded uh, racists in your community who would proudly sort of join you. I should say there is a, a, a debate, uh, a considerable debate about whether our lives that are online, our online lives are actually more homophilous, more of an echo chamber than our, our lives offline, right? Because we are living with, uh, you know, as it's more politically similar people than we have in, uh, you know, recent American history, right? So that we are, when I talk to my students in, in Palo Alto, right, uh, I ask them, you know, who, where are you more likely to find someone who's different than you politically? Is it in your Facebook feed or is it on University Avenue in Palo Alto, right? And uh, most of the studies suggest that we are at least as politically diverse in the kind of friends that we have online as we are in uh, our real offline lives. Um, and in fact, in many respects, we might have uh, more politically different uh, friends online. Um, we all have that uncle, right, you know, who, who, who posts on Facebook. Um, Next problem is uh, the sovereignty issue, which I mentioned before, which is the, the, if you think democracy requires something about the nation's ability to control the political conversation to the electorate, right, to the nationals that for whom, who, is, who are choosing those leaders, um, the World Wide Web, which is worldwide after all, uh, threatens that aspect of a democracy. And I almost don't even need to go through it since you've been seeing um, the, I mean, the Russia investigation is top of mind for so many people. But it's really 
new, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenon that had been happening around the world before uh, it became news in the United States, but the ability of foreign actors, whether they're private or, or uh, government actors, to be able to influence another country's elections. Now, of course, U.S. has a proud tradition of doing that uh, before the internet. There's plenty of examples of one country trying to influence another. But now, combined with anonymity, um, this allows, uh, it, it prevents um, really sort of national regulations of elections in ways th that previously were, were much easier. Um, the last sort of distinct phenomenon I wanted to, to highlight is the problem of monopoly. Okay, now that's the role of the platforms, particularly Facebook and Google. Um, I should say, and uh, uh, Miriam Metzger is here from UCSB, and she and I just spent the last two days at Harvard uh, uh, dealing with this project that I'm working on, dealing with Facebook. Uh, I, am, I am working on an independent commission trying to figure out Facebook's influence on democracy, both in the US and around the world. Um, and, but we need to sort of acknowledge that these gatekeepers to the internet um, are performing qualitatively different roles than the media magnets of, of, of previous generations. They are different than CBS and NBC and, and uh, ABC. Um, their rules about what appears where in your Facebook feed or Twitter feed or, or say YouTube recommended videos and the like, those rules are in many ways more important than official laws that regulate campaigns. Right? The decisions that they make about what kind of speech is allowed and what kind of speech is prioritized right, um, can have dramatic influence on the kind of information that we receive. I should note, now putting on my, my law professor's hat, that the, uh, the rules that they have with respect to terms of service and community guidelines, dealing with things like obscenity and hate speech and uh, intellectual property and terrorist content, and they have a whole set of rules. All of them would violate the First Amendment if they were legislated by government, okay? Um, now, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In some ways, what most people are sort of arguing is that they got to go farther, right? They got to start going after falsity in, in, on, uh, online. They have to be much more aggressive with hate speech and the like. But they are private companies, and the same First Amendment that, prevents, that protects the corporations and Citizens United also protects their ability to regulate speech online. And they're getting into trouble with that, as you may have seen in the hearings that Mark Zuckerberg had to testify in last week, um, as they get accused of uh, censoring conservative content more than uh, liberal content, right? And in a sense, they can't win, right? No matter what they do, uh, they're going to end up uh, being pilloried for something. Uh, but the, the point right, is that these private companies, multinational companies, have rules that are governing political conversation in ways that formal law never did. Right? And it's extremely important. It's even more important outside the United States because there are some places where, say, Facebook is the internet. Right? If you look at some of these developing countries, I don't know if you saw the New York Times did last week this story on what was happening in Sri Lanka and how it was leading to, to really months uh, because of the rumors that were being seen uh, on Facebook. So those are, those are the different phenomena uh, that I think distinguish the internet uh, from previous technologies and pose unique uh, threats to democracy. So what are we going to do about it? Okay. That's mainly the question I want to ask you all. Uh, but let me, let me throw out. <laughs> I was teasing. Uh, 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 so let me throw out. Let me, th so let, let me first say who. Who's going to solve this problem? Right? Stanford professors? No. no. Uh, it, it, 
there are really three actors that you can look to, uh, to, to try to address these problems. The first is government. And in the US, it's uh, unlikely that it's going to be, our, I mean, the federal government is having enough trouble doing all kinds of things. This is, is particularly difficult. And the, the First Amendment pr does provide some uh, obstacles. In fact, though, it is a unique area, particularly when you think of the power of the platforms, where the extreme right and the extreme left are actually ganging up on uh, these powerful yet liberal companies in Silicon Valley, right, who are determining the political conversation. If you want to look to governmental reform, a lot of it is going to come from Europe. Right? Uh, and so the Europeans are much more aggressive in um, thinking about how the law can be used to rein in uh, the power of these companies and also to sort of structure uh, the rules of political conversation in ways that haven't been done before. There's something called the, you know, the German fake news bill that's out there. It's actually more of an anti-hate speech bill. Um, and uh, that bill, for example, fines the internet companies over 50 million euros for each act of illegal speech that occurs on their platform uh, that they are notified if they don't take it down within 24 hours of notification. Right. And that would be unconstitutional here, almost certainly. But, uh, but the, and then that, that law is being replicated uh, in many other countries around the world. And so Europe may be the tail that wag, wags the American dog because the, the firms then respond to those kinds of incentives. Right. Um, so government, where there's a chance of government regulation, there may be some kind of campaign finance-ish regulation that goes on in the US. Maybe this so-called Honest Ads Act maybe will get some traction. Uh, but the most likely area that, and, and the one that's, that's proven the most dynamic is the platforms themselves. right? And so as much as everybody beats up on Facebook and Google, they have experimented with and been incredibly nimble when it comes to reforms to their platform since this 2016 election. I can go into all the different things, whether it's um, you know, trying to flag disputed or fake news articles or um, trying to slow down virality by, by going after something called you know, clickbait, right? the, the likelihood that someone's forwarding you uh, uh, sort of some kind of trash article, trying to deprive the um, uh, certain websites of the income that they were getting from advertising uh, if they were engaging in uh, sort of uh, propagation of fake news. And so the platforms, and this is one of the reasons I'm doing this Facebook project, I think are the main actors here and that, that uh, they're going to be much more responsive uh, than governments. But then there's all of us, right? The third actor in this, uh, the NGOs, the population, the users, who uh, can do lots of things in order to combat this as well. Um, this project that we have on Democracy and the Internet at Stanford is in part about that, in trying to get the students, right, get, get uh, the techies in particular to start thinking creatively about things that they can do in order to uh, try to combat these problems like um, uh, falsity online, bots, and the like, because there are some technological responses that, that we can try as, as citizens to, um, to, to, to make more official. All right, so, so I'm going to just rattle off uh, some where, where I think um, you could, there are sort of intervention points. And it should be clear that what we are talking about, though, is combating, right, and, reg and we, we need to be uh, honest about this, is regulating speech, right? It is about slowing down or otherwise controlling political communication, okay? And so um, uh, this is as fraught an area as you can imagine for, say, a First Amendment scholar. But as I said before, the, the platforms 
are in the business of making decisions about what speech is permitted and what is not. And so the first thing that you can do, depending on what category we speak of speech we think is problematic, is censorship or deletion. Right? You'll see that each one of these categories has a D in it. That wasn't intentional. It's not like my attempt at a Tony Robbins slogan or something, but, but it happens to be that way. Uh, so deletion of content online. As I said before, um, they, you, the, the, they do this for intellectual property violations, obscenity, hate speech, terrorist content, child endangerment, a whole list of categories. The question is, is something like fake news uh, the, uh, or falsity going to fall into that category? Right? The second, which is act actually something that they've experimented with quite a bit is disclosure, right? So uh, if you can figure out whether a, you know, a, a publication is um, from Russia, right, RT, right? A lot of people don't know that it's Russia today. Uh, so somehow to distinguish among content that you see online by providing additional information about it. And Facebook and Google and some others have, have tried to get fact checkers more involved to then, so that you say these disputed flags on, on content. One of the things they found out, Facebook found out, is that if you put sort of a red flag or whatever color it was and says disputed, then people are like, oh, disputed, let me read that, right? And so it had a kind of perverse effect where it led to greater engagement and it led to a kind of erroneous sense of trust in the other articles that were online that might not have gotten those flags, and so they've abandoned that, right? Um, and so disclosure sounds good in, in theory, but in fact it becomes, uh, you know, a lot of people um, don't go through the work of trying to figure out the additional information about the, the, uh, you know, what they're seeing on their phone um, from news sources and the like. Um, the third area, the third kind of reform is, is demotion. Right? And as I said before, you know, it is wrong to think about Facebook and Google as, in a sense, the public square. Okay? We tend to, they, they sometimes call themselves that, and certainly politicians is like, look, this is the new public square. This is, they are the Boston Commons. Right? But the technology itself, right, it's not an open platform where everybody speaks at once or you have to, it, they organize information for you. Right? And the decisions about what goes at the top and what go at the bottom are critically important. And so when, and, and they're not absent value judgments, right? You, they, they, you have to make decisions often about the quality of content as to what you put at the, at the top and what you put at the bottom. And um, so therefore, one of the strategies besides deletion and disclosure is demotion to take problematic content and to put it lower as opposed to, now that's much less sensorial, right? That's, that's less of a kind of prior restraint kind of problem and, and, and less uh, dramatic, um, but it could have the same effect. And, and in fact, one of the things that has been, uh, that, that they've seen is, uh, and it has been complained about by conservative news outlets is they've seen about a 30%, some of them have seen a 30% decrease in traffic uh, as a result of some of the decisions that Facebook has, has made. And this came out in the hearings as well. All right, what else? And then I think I'm probably at the edge of my time here. Yeah. So uh, the, what, what other Ds do we have? So um, there's deterrence, which is to go after bad actors by depriving them of money, um, and uh, as well as going after bad actors in, in even offline. And so this is what they did with the so-called Macedonian teenagers, um, this group of uh, teenagers that were in Macedonia that were trying to make money. And um, 
uh, Google and Facebook figured out ways, and they, they were putting out fake news in order, and they were getting advertising revenue as a result. And so they, Google uh, deprived them of that uh, money. And then uh, another uh, avenue of reform is delay. If you think the problem is the speed at which information is traveling online, the unmediated uh, 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 viral transmission of information, Krishna Bharat, the, the founder of Google News, says, you know what we need are kind of speed bumps and trip wires on the internet to you know, have human observation of, um, uh, uh, of news before it reaches a dangerous level of virality. And then the final, final D of reform, which in some ways you might think is the way that uh, uh, our government is currently operating, is distraction and diversion, um, which is to force attention away from some topics toward others. Uh, the Chinese government actually does this. It's sort of interesting. You think about that most of what China, sort of its regulation of the internet is probably about deletion and aggressive sort of removal of content. But a lot of, a lot of what they do is actually get into conversations and shift the focus, right? To distract, to divert attention toward other things. Um, and so while we, you know, um, obviously we see this as an authoritarian kind of reform, there are less authoritarian ways of doing this by offering people other kinds of information to dilute, another D, dilute the bad stuff online uh, with good stuff, right? That's easier in Europe and other places with, with um, sort of proud and financially robust public broadcasting systems. Then, you know, NPR doesn't have that kind of reach. Maybe it does in this room, but it doesn't uh, uh, for the most part uh, in the country, right? Uh, but those are really the options, right? And, and as pessimistic as both this talk may have been and as you may feel about the internet democracy, um, it's a time of great experimentation, right? The problems that we're seeing today are not necessarily the problems we're going to even be talking about in two months or in the next election, right? It's a dynamic process, um, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for creativity, right? And so, so uh, you know, keep the faith, <laughs> and stay hopeful, uh, and, and, you know, do your part to try and uh, combat these, these unique challenges the Internet's posing for democracy. Thank you very much. We appreciate that extraordinarily condensed and facile treatment of a very complicated subject. But as you can see from the readings and his summary, his possession of the nuances is really quite extraordinary. And that's what we hope to take advantage of in today's seminar. I say seminar because a word on format. We operate somewhat differently than the usual lecture Q&A, which is to say we invite our speaker to lead a conversation that is solution-oriented on an issue uh, as complicated and challenging as this one. For your part, what we ask is that as you enter the door, you set aside for a few hours whatever partisan uh, proclivities you might have. Um, you can pick them up when you leave. But here at Public Square, we ask that you think about the common good as you frame your responses. Uh, he'll be leading this conversation for 45 minutes or so, 50 minutes, after which we'll ask him to make a concluding remarks. So have with it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Also, I should say that because we are audio taping this event for podcast, uh, when you'd like to speak, just raise your hand and one of the two assistants in the back um, we'll run you a mic so that we can record you and um, 
your words will be audible forever. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so I've given you my, my uh, uh, six Ds of reform. What are yours? Uh, uh, what can we do in this um, uh, challenging environment? Um, You have students, and we have some students here. I've noticed in the students who work with me that they're much less interested or concerned about invasion of privacy mm -hmm. than we are in our generation, and I wanted you to speak to that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, it's funny. I am now, uh, I, I feel like an old fuddy-duddy when it comes to the, the internet because I, um, I don't use inter Instagram. Not only do I not use Instagram, I don't understand Instagram. Um, and that, that why, why do people take pictures, these kids, get off my lawn? Yeah, you know, uh, you know wh why is it that people, they're, they're essentially taking pictures of their day all, you know, all day long and putting it up, on, up online, essentially exposed, you know, but it gives you a sense of, it's like that their, their private life is public, right? And at the same time, as you've sort of indicated, right, um, there's, there's uh, you know, whether it's what they send on email or what they, so their interaction with the platforms, they uh, assume that, um, that it's, it's all out there. I'll give you a story. When I was a, a professor, my first job, I had a, and this is before Facebook, um, I had a student who live blogged my class, okay? And I, I found out about this, you know, and I read the blog, and you know, she said something. It wasn't so bad, but it's like, oh, today's a really boring class, or something like this. And I remember the next lecture, I was talking about something, and I turned and I said, "For those of you live blogging, right?" And it was like I invaded her personal internet. You know, it was like, "How dare you?" You know, it's like, "Well, wait, it's it's out there for the entire world to see." You know, everyone from you know Afghanistan to here can see what you're talking about, and. Um, but that was, that was what was, uh, uh, you know, sort of brought it home for me. Um, at the same time, you know, on the one hand, they are, uh, I think you're right, that, that there's a sense in which the private is public. On the other hand, they are, you know, they have an incredible sophistication with the new technology that enables, especially when you start thinking about politics and like that they know, um, I mean, there are different rules. We have a whole project actually at Stanford called the iGen Project, which is all about, uh, the generation of students who have only grown up with the internet and how they talk and how they, uh, they interact online. Um, anonymity, for example, uh, and how they sort of take advantage of anonymity online is very different than, than the way we would think about it, uh, taking on different personalities, genders, you know, and the like, and, and how that enables uh, certain things. So, you know, the, the, and if you look at the way, uh, I'm again sort of riffing here a little bit, but just generationally and thinking about the, um, internet, the Parkland students, right? So the, the, this has been a test case for whether young people are uniquely situated because of the technology to take advantage of it in a way to, to launch a social movement, which prior to that really hadn't had um, the kind of juice. And you know, if, if you just see the way the sort of interaction between the Parkland students and Marco Rubio, for instance, right? You see that, all right, don't, whatever you do, don't go after a teenager online because they will eat you alive, right? You know, and, and, um, and so, you know, there's, there's, I think you're right that there's a sense in which they, they are uh, uh, averting to the risk of that the private is public, but also for that generation, they're, they're using this technology in a qualitatively different way than we are. Uh, 
this goes to the finance issues you mm -hmm. raised earlier. One area where, sorry, one area where it seems to be living up to its utopian promise is in small donor fundraising, and how do you see that changing the um, national landscape on fundraising, and what's, what, what's it doing? So the irony is that you think that, that we think of, look, if we can only have small donors giving in campaigns, we might be able to combat the polarization of PACs or super PACs or large financial interests and the like. It turns out that small donors are just as polarized as large donors, okay? And that the more polarized appeals you make as a politician, the more successful you are with small donors. Okay, and we've seen this time and again. If you remember, uh, I can't remember his name, the, the congressman who had, um, when, when, when Barack Obama was giving a State of the Union speech and one of the congressmen then said, you lie, Joe Wilson, right. Um, Two million dollars within a few days, online from small donations, right. Um, uh, Michelle uh, Bachman, same thing. Bernie Sanders, same thing, right. Uh, and, and Donald Trump got a huge amount of, of small contributions, right? And so that there's, there's, you know, there's a mixed story here, which is, yeah, it's an in, in enabling uh, uh, platform for small donors, but it's not clear it's necessarily moving away from uh, some of the polarizing tendencies of large donations. Now, maybe the answer is, well, so polarization is just one problem. At least it maybe diminishes the influence of large institutions or large uh, donors and the like, and maybe, maybe there's something there. Um, but at the same time, we've seen these, you know, this explosion in small donors. We still have, you know, it's still the case that, um, and, I, and I published a report on this in January, that something like 80,000 Americans give half the money in campaigns right now. So, so there's, there's sort of much more money in campaigns, but it's also uh, still heavily concentrated. I guess it's me. Um, first of all, thank you for that, that overview. It's the more, that's a more concise overview of the issues than I've ever heard before. Um, appreciate that. Um, there are so many different ways that we can go with this from the generational differences to, um, to some of the specifics, but let me keep it at the broad level. Uh, Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech, and Justice Black says no law means no law. I'm wondering if um, we even have a, a public or community consensus on the definitions and the issues. Because we have, you know, the Supreme Court has said that they know obscenity when they see it, um, but we don't seem to have a public consensus as to what is speech, even who are reporters, whether a blogger or a citizen is actually a reporter, and even whether news is fake or not. So from the basic, absolute, broad level of consensus in our society, do we even have that? So there's a lot there. Uh, so, the, the, so let me talk about that. Let me talk, specifically talk about that in the context of the internet first, and then I'll sort of w walk it back. Um, so one of the things that the internet does is it blurs all of those categories that we thought were kind of critical with thinking about speech regulation. For example, who's the media? Right? You might have thought the New York Times had kind of special First Amendment standing, or The Post, if you've seen the movie. Um, uh, and th that's mainly through statutes, as you know, not the, fr not the First Amendment itself. But, but now who's the media in an age where anyone can tweet, blog, or put up a Facebook post? Right? That has implications for campaign finance as well. 
um, because uh, we've often thought that, I mean, while corporations, as and, you know, before Citizens United, you'd say, well, corporations can't spend unlimited amounts of money on campaigns. Well, what about the New York Times Corporation? We said, all right, well, they're different. All right, but in the internet age, whenever, how can you figure out who's the media and who's not? How can you figure out what's uh, sort of election-related communication versus non-election communication? Who are insiders versus outsiders? What's the difference between advertising, which, as you know, uh, gets lesser sort of constitutional status, or at least until recently, um, advertising versus non-paid speech, right? Especially if you can hire an army of internet trolls to essentially put up the same information that you might otherwise pay to put on you know, either TV or Facebook and the like. So all of those categories, which were central to the way we think about uh, regulating speech, uh, melt away when it comes uh, to the internet. Now, here's an interesting, so we you mentioned obscenity, and so I'm going to talk for the next half hour about obscenity. No, I, I, the, the obscenity, here's a really interesting thing about um, obscenity regulation, what's happening online. So, um, and it gives you, this is hope for the future in terms of, of, of how new technology may have a way of dealing with some of these problems that we haven't been able to deal with. So, uh, as you know, the famous cases dealing with obscenity, right? Justice Stewart says, um, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. All right. And so, and that has basically led in the First Amendment to allowing almost anything on, on you know, in terms of speech when it comes to obscenity. Uh, and so what, um, but what does YouTube do with obscenity, right? And they, they do have this army of people who's unfortunately all day long looking at this stuff to try to think, yes, this violates our terms of service or not. But af, as you, a, uh, test as the, the, the firm um, um, gets more and more uh, individual opinions about what is pornography, what's not, what's allowed. They then feed that into the algorithm so that now you have through machine learning and artificial intelligence that the machine itself is now able to automatically delete things that, that are obscene even before uh, individuals can see it. So literally, the computer knows it when it sees it now, and has solved, or at least addressed this problem that has bedeviled constitutional scholars uh, for generations. Uh, but you are right, which is that we have sort of basic um, disagreements over fundamental tenets of, of free speech law. I should say, though, the United States is out on a limb when it comes to free speech law. We are very different than the rest of the world, whether it is obscenity, or campaign, campaign finance, campaign advertising, uh, libel and defamation, right? All of these areas, we are the most libertarian and far uh, sort of in that direction as compared to Europe and, and other countries. Uh, and what's happening now is that if Europe becomes that tail that wags the dog, a lot of that more restrictive approach to free expression may uh, bleed over into our country as well. Uh, thank you. Um, Thank you so much for being with here. I'm one of the Westmont students who's been wonderfully invited to participate uh, in this conversation. Um, I was curious, uh, you in your listing of the problems of the internet, you didn't touch as much about like information as power or the ability um, as we increase the amount of public information about ourselves either through Internet of Things, um, Facebook quizzes, um, or whatever else about how that might affect um, democracy and the ability to individually target or manipulate yeah. citizens with that public information. Uh, and I was wondering, was that uh, lack of inclusion, it's not a current problem, it's a future problem, or are you more optimistic than I am about uh, that, that challenge? So the, the targeting problem is one that I group in the, under the category of echo chambers and homophily, but though you're right, it could be distinct. And that is, 
one of the sort of features of the internet is that you can you know, further subdivide and define the population into these narrow uh, groups based particularly on their behavior online. And so uh, political advertising can be personalized, right? Not just political advertising, but advertising, right? And communication can be personalized uh, down to your interest. And so let me talk about the Cambridge Analytica scandal for a second because that's sort of what you're gesturing toward. And so what the Cambridge Analytica scandal, right, was the use by an academic of um, uh, you know, a lot of these Facebook quizzes, right, to then generate what are known as psychographic profiles of you know, what turns out, we don't know whether it'll be 30 or 80 million people or something like it was several thousand at the time, but, but in terms of the number of uh, people who had their data scraped, it was in the millions. Um, and the idea is, well, the more you know about someone, well, then the more you can persuade them and manipulate them and deliver content to them that's going to push them one way or the other. Um, I should say I've had the folks from Cambridge Analytica before this scandal to even talk to my class. Um, according to them, the psychographic profiling was not really much of um, a big part of the 2016 campaign. And I've talked to the people in the Trump campaign also who, who, who suggest that as well. Um, they still did, however, do target, typical targeted communication on Facebook that we know um, was, uh, you know, delivered in the areas that you would have expected toward the populations that you would have uh, uh, expected, and that's been widely uh, reported. And so while I actually don't think that, that they did it, I, I think this is one of these examples of a lot of chest thumping by a corporation to try to get clients, um, that is the future, right? And that it, that it is uh, a challenge, you know, as we look forward. One of the things, in, in one of the articles I, I gave you, um, I suggest that one of the things that the platform should think about is to calibrate the level of disclosure with the level of targeting, right? So that the more targeted the communication to you, the more you need to know that you're being targeted, right? And, and by whom, for what uh, reason. And so I think that, you know, as we, as we get to that kind of personalized uh, communication, um, I think it's, it is important to, to be wary of it. But again, that's, that's the thing we love about the internet also, right? This is, the, this is really the problem. If you start thinking about the, the problem of homophily, the problem of echo chambers, right? you say, oh, isn't it terrible? Look at the polarization online. People are, they're not being exposed to other, other beliefs. They're not being exposed to other news stories and the like. And yet, when you go to a search engine, when you go to Google and you type in something, you want it to be the most relevant answer to your question, right? That is an echo chamber, okay? That is what it is, right? It's, it's about trying, based on what the search engine derives about you, what, what's the most likely answer to your question based on uh, your previous behavior, right? Um, and so, and do you want, the, do you want the, the, the search engine making decisions about sort of recommending stuff to you um, that is uh, opposite of what you actually want to see as opposed to the things that are more like the things that you want to see. Now, there's a dark side to that, right? Reinforcement. Zainab Tufeci, if you read some of her stuff at the, in the New York Times, she has some great sort of experiments or at least her experience with YouTube on how she was talking about how you start, if you start asking for one type of uh, video, you end up going down a much more extreme route. So she looked under vegetarianism, right? and was quickly shuttled off to veganism, right? After, after you start, and then it goes even farther, right? And so you can think about the political equivalent of that, right? Um, 
and and you can and you look at uh, uh, same thing with some of the other uh, political stories of the day and and where you quickly fall into the most extreme conspiratorial kinds of uh, uh, sites as a result of the internet's sort of tendency to try to to further define you. So I am concerned about that, um, uh, but it's one of these things that it's, it might be an intractable feature of our online experience that we're trying to you know get more and more. Um, specific and have stuff delivered to it. And, but remember, that's not just in terms of the communication that we're going to be receiving. Here's what Amazon will do for you now, which is that they will deliver you products before you ask for them, right? You can, you can figure, they, they, I mean, it's, soon they're going to be delivering it by drones. But what, the, what they'll do, right, they'll know when you need toilet paper and when you don't. Now, that's, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Um, but, but, but because based on your past behavior, they, they, they're probably going to be better able to figure that out than you are, you know? Um, uh, what, when, it, when do you need milk, right? And you get this now, right? Did you see the, the it was the, the study with Target, right? And this is actually before the internet, when they will, um, they knew when someone was pregnant, when it was someone, a woman was pregnant, right? Um, based on the large number of factors of what, what they may have been looking for, what other stuff they may have been uh, buying, right? And then suddenly there was this father who, uh, uh, you know, was getting suggested these um, uh, 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 other pregnancy-related kinds of things, and he learned something about his daughter uh, at that moment. Yeah, that was the story that came from that. The title of the talk is about democracy. Yeah. Yeah. to political parties, can, and, and democracy relies some part in citizens believing that they can choose for yeah. themselves, do we eventually lose the ability to have a democracy we believe in? Because if any time someone else votes something you don't believe in, you can say, oh, they just got better ad targeting, or oh, yeah. you know, I, I can't make a decision for myself. You know, so um, with all of these problems, you know, I, I, I will get uh, sort of fall, fall into uh, three criticisms. One is, what I think is new is actually old. The other is what I think is bad is actually good. And the third is what I think is an original idea by me is something that someone else has written about already. Um, and so in this case, I, I think that, the, that this is, you know, this complaint, and I share it, by the way, just so you know we're on the same page, but this is one that's always been made about political advertising generally and polit political advertising in particular. And so I think that, um, you know, most people, you can predict how they're going to vote based on how they voted in the last election, right? And there's nothing, there's nothing Cambridge Analytica is going to be able to do to change that, right? Uh, or any other, you know, group. Um, note, by the way, just in terms of political targeting, in the 2008 and 2012 election, when we talked about political targeting, it was about the geniuses in the Obama campaign who figured out ways to target through, like, the Big Ten network, uh, uh, and, and cable data, right? And so at that time, at least when we talked about political targeting, it was the sort of these, uh, you know, 25-year-old Jedi masters who were moving from Silicon Valley into the, uh, 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 into the Democrats' campaign. So, you know, there, there's, the, to some extent, it, where you stand depends on where you sit on this. But they, they uh, I, I think that we shouldn't overstate the ability to manipulate political positions, particularly vote choice. Um, um, the evidence is not there yet that it's had as much an effect as people think. In fact, there has always been a debate as to whether political advertising, political TV advertising, has any effect at all, right? 
Um, and so, you know, the, the, I, I share your concerns about what the trajectory is here, but I think that uh, we, have a lot, we have a lot of research that needs to be done. And I, and I should say that's also part of our project, um, looking at Facebook's impact on democracy, th looking at things like political advertising as well as um, uh, advertising generally and how, it, how that kind of feeding of information has effects. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, to follow on with that same line, I, I'm always amazed when I'm listening to some of the commentators on TV talk about the platform, again, sort of sounding benign, this platform and that there is the harvesting going on of information, mm -hmm. another sort of benign word. And nobody's saying that they're stealing customers' information or anything of that sort. And is that just accepted for the fact that anybody who wants to put their grandchildren's photos on Facebook right. then is then gonna have a barrage coming from being harvested, yeah. all of your information? And I, I guess the other thing too is that the disingenuous position of a lot of the executives in Silicon Valley about this, especially on Facebook, when, when they were confronted with the fact that they had all these Russian bots and all these interference, and they were trying to deny it. However, they were being paid in rubles and somehow didn't realize that this might give them a hint of where the, where the interference was coming from. Yeah. Um, so first on the, the privacy issue, with the harvesting point that you're, you're mentioning, um, this is the area where the Europeans are much more uh, aggressive than we are in the U.S. And so the uh, GDPR, which is the European data uh, privacy law, uh, that is going to, it, it has huge effects in terms of the ability of the platforms in Europe to save this kind of information. Also, you have the uh, law in Europe about the right to be forgotten, which is about trying to preserve your ability essentially to erase your history online. I'm exaggerating that, but that's sort of one, one of the um, features of it. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what, but that is Facebook's enterprise, right, is to know as much about uh, its audience so that it can then deliver content to them, whether it's paid or, or unpaid. Um, and so uh, I think that most people don't realize how much information they have about you. But you know, this is also, you know, it's not just Facebook and it's not just the internet companies, right? So when you look at the Equifax breach or you look at um, what the phone companies, right? Verizon have and Comcast and, and these other firms, let alone Amazon, you know. So, so social media is, is a particular source of concern, I think, because of the amount of disclosure we voluntarily engage in online. Uh, on those platforms, but um, this is a, a ubiquitous problem across all kinds of uh, industries right now. And we'll see whether there is an appetite for regulation in this area. Um, uh, one of the interesting things that people think about the German or the, the European privacy law is that, you know, the Facebook and Google, they'll, they'll be fine if, if under those laws. They're still going to have their sort of huge monopolies and, and they, can, they can do well. It's going to be much more difficult for a competitor now to arise under a system that protects that privacy because uh, no one is going to know as much about you as, as those platforms already do. And so there's real concern that this aggressive protection of privacy will actually uh, cement the powerful position of the platforms. You're right, neutral, but, but these firms, these internet behemoths, if you prefer that. Um, and uh, the second point you made about is, is, is disingenuousness of, of the platforms. 
Um, sometimes I feel like, you know, it is, and, and having now dealt with them for a month or so, uh, uh, it, is, it is so complicated what, the, 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 uh, what they are engaged in and the sheer amount of data that they are swimming in um, and the number of people who have to sort of analyze a problem uh, that it doesn't surprise me that things like the ruble problem actually slip through. And, this, and here's, here's one of the reasons why, which is that you know, the, the, the reason these companies, these and this is why they are called platforms, have been able to scale at such a level is because they don't have the, the size of the workforce of a lot of these traditional industries that we would assume that they have. So they weren't monitoring, right? The algorithm, the computers itself, it's just bringing in money and then it's putting up ads, right? Now they, now they realize they should, you know, have more human monitoring in that, in that sphere, but, uh, but they didn't. Messing around with the First Amendment doesn't seem to be a very good idea. <laughs> and there's a dark side to that. But also, how about, what do you think about regulating the, the process of data mining, as, yeah. as this as was just brought up, about harvesting? What do you think about, uh, as, a, as a possible uh, beginning of regulation, uh, is to regulate the amount of data mining that these platforms can actually conduct, uh, and, and limiting that? And, and uh, another alternative is, uh, what did Facebook have to pay you yeah, that's for selling most. your information? This, it's yours. You, it belongs to you. This is actually a proposal that the Europeans are thinking about, what they call a data tax or um, some way of, of compensating people for the information that they... And there are other private initiatives that are thinking about doing this in this way, that, that if you had some kind of consent, you know, you paid someone for... To some extent, your phone company does that for you already. Why is an iPhone so cheap? I mean, it's not that cheap, but, it, but, but, but why is it less than the price that you would have to pay? Uh, it's because of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're getting a lot of information about you uh, when you're on the telecommunications network. So, so a lot of those, those, are, those proposals are ones that are being considered in Europe. Um, but again, if you start unpeeling, you've got this monopoly problem that I was talking about before and how the privacy laws actually interact with the monopoly problem. But even beyond that, it's not just... You know, it's not just going to be the social media companies, I and mean, they're rightly in our crosshairs right now. But if you start thinking about the privacy problem, right, you're talking about all the financial industry stuff. I mean, um, um, if you look at what the political uh, organizations get, right, the, there's um, uh, all of your credit card data, right, is is potentially breachable, and, and there are firms that basically have that, right. Um, and you can, I mean, I've seen the political databases, right, where they join for all, you know, uh, 200 million eligible voters in the U.S. Every, they've got scores on people for, every, you know, they know all the magazines you've subscribed to. And then, you're right, the, the internet companies know about the websites you visited, maybe, or, or the conversations uh, that you've had. But, but this problem of sort of the overarching uh, power of a lot of firms to have private information goes beyond the social media companies. Just to <clears throat> speak to that point uh, myself, just a total vignette before I ask my question. Um, I made the I'm an Apple News user periodically, mm -hmm. and I made the gross error of opening up 
one of the Apple Newses uh, on Kate Middleton and her cute little kids. Um, next time I opened Apple News, I had dozens of Kate Middleton's dresses, her shoes, whatever, um, which I found delightful um, and really very interesting. Um, um, but um, I solved the problem. Now, with Apple News, before I sign on to Apple News, I engage my VPN. Mm -hmm. And that takes care of that. Mm -hmm. They don't know who I am. A virtual private network. I there, those are services you can get throughout the United States. You can invest not very much money on a monthly basis. You, before you sign in to one of these websites like Apple <coughs> News, you have your VPN, you sign on your VPN, your VPN then signs on to Apple News, and you don't get that anymore. Anyways, just to Not only that though, just to, I'll let you ask your question, but th that you can alter what Facebook knows about you, okay, and you can go into your preferences, and they've, te you, first of all, it's, it's illuminating, uh, New York Times did an article on this last week, um, where you just go in, and, and, and I've gone in, delete everything, right, uh, it's interesting to see how they've tagged your interests and everything, but you can, essentially remove their knowledge about you, at least at that level. Right, thank you. Yeah. It, it, it will affect the, the, the information that, and the targeting that they you get, especially by advertising. They don't know. Yeah. Anyway, my question. Um, many people of those of us civilians who think about this problem of fake news and defending against all of that, um, many of us have long felt that the best defense against that is... Um, a well-furnished well mind. In other words, education. In many parts of the United States, we find that education is now significantly and critically unfunded. Uh, ergo, teacher strikes and things of this nature that we're observing. We also see the United States rated against other nations throughout the world with respect to our education, mm -hmm. uh, secondary, primary, etc. Distressing, depressing. Um, is there any thought about maybe the way to do this is not technical, but having more well-furnished minds out there reading this junk? Well, so there's uh, a lot of effort in that area. Um, there's some interesting initiatives that have been happening in some of the Scandinavian countries to address just that. Um, we have a project at Stanford through the Education Department. Sam Weinberg and our Education Department is developing curricula for critical thinking and news distinction. So there is, there is a lot of work um, to be done there. Uh, that is a, a huge challenge, though. I mean, if you think what we're talking about here, we're talking about teaching critical thinking, right? And it's like that, that, that was important even in before the Internet age and a challenge then as well. And, you know, in thinking about how to do this, um, you know, you've got to figure out what's the Texas Department of Education, how, how is it going to amplify uh, critical thinking skills and what kind of curriculum it's going to have versus California versus Florida uh, and the like, right? And, and so it, it is very difficult, um, um, but worth trying, you know, and, and especially on civics education. Justice O'Connor has a uh, whole sort of initiative in this area, I think through Arizona State. and. Um, and so, yeah, look at the, tech, the, the Stanford education uh, proposal on this. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you very, very, very much for giving such a well-informed presentation. I heard it. That's okay. okay. <laughs>
I really appreciate how you were able to nail down the three factors, the three main factors on this problem, the individual, the government, and the platforms themselves. And the solution, I believe, is within those three working in for some sort of solution. Obviously, the government and the platforms, we can't change overnight, but we can change ourselves as individuals. And leading from the last gentleman's point is that, yeah, education, I'm sure, is a major, major factor in it. But to what point can we get it, get the masses, not, not just the masses, but also ourselves more understanding as to we are the masses you know well i mean just so you know you're well, part of it well actually we can't even control the masses <laughs> as for that matter we can only control ourselves right right and by that obviously the masses but let's start it ourselves something right. manageable right so my question to you is what could i do within the next 24 hours or anyone here within the next 24 hours become more equipped to understand and deal with and become more productive members of society all right. Well, all right. So you've you've got 24 hours. So let let let. I got, um, the, so so let, look. There's there's a lot we can do. So so I've mentioned just just in passing that you 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 should take control of your digital life in ways that you haven't already. Right. So there's a lot you can do in with these platforms um, that you know in terms of of finding out what they know about you and then editing accordingly, as well as changing. You could, for example, if you wanted to not allow Facebook to deliver news that it thinks that you like. You could have it deliver it to you in a chronological way, right? So that the most recent thing that your friends posted is the thing that it occurs at the top, right? Now, you might actually not like that because you've grown accustomed to them serving you things, you know, all of your information on the royals that you're getting right now, right? You know, uh, but, but, yeah, <laughs> but, 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 uh, you know, that, that, that's something that, that you can do. Um, I there's there are all kinds of uh, websites that you can use to enable, both to protect your privacy online, something like Ghostery, which is a, a website that will um, basically track, it, you, you will be amazed. It, so install that on your web browser. It will show you um, with every website how many different firms are tracking you at that point, and it will, and it will prevent them from doing so. So you can look at that. Ghostery, um, you can install it in Chrome or, or, or another thing. Um, then there are all kinds of, if, if we're worried about this homophily problem, about you being fed news that is pre-selected for you, there's um, several websites that, that do work on this. Red, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the, the website, but do red, red feed, blue feed, right? And so it will make sure that you end up getting other kinds of information besides the ones that seem to be, that you, that you are attracted to. Uh, but, here's, so, but here's something you can do that, that's not terribly popular, but, but it's got a good slogan, right? And I've been waiting for the right time to say this, and so now I'll say it here, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, friend your enemies and follow the stranger, right? Which is that um, what you can do, if we think that this is a kind of organic thing that comes from the fact that our social networks are maybe too isolated, um, uh, trying to, and I do this, I mean, I have, you should see what's on my Twitter feed. I've got the most conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, crazy, but, but people who are very different than me, right? So I know what's, what's going on out there. And following the stranger, right, is uh, make exposing yourself to different types of ideology online. Um, hi, uh, thank you again for the interview, or the overview <coughs> you uh, presented for us. 
one of the things you mentioned is that the platforms and the companies that run the platforms are going to be uh, very important kind of contributors to solving uh, the yeah. problems that you've outlined, kind of problems associated with uh, anonymity um, uh, and other issues. Uh, I was wondering what incentives do these platforms currently have to tackle these problems? And um, kind of given that, is there anything that we can do or the government can do to alter that incentive structure to make them kind of more likely um, or better, uh, kind of better motivated to tackle the problems in a way that's healthy to democracy? So I want to take a position that I think is going to be unpopular in this room which is that when it comes to these questions about politics, I actually don't think the platforms are being driven by financial incentives, okay? That Mark Zuckerberg, when he started Facebook, this was not about politics, right? I mean, it was about hearing stuff from your friends and, and family members and the like. And that this evolution to become basically this giant media conglomerate and, and the impact of news, this was genuinely unexpected. This is not what they want. And the role of political advertising, political manipulation is something they don't want. And, 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 and if you wondered, <laughs> you know, they lost over $50 billion in market capitalization as a result of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So they, ha they do have economic incentives as well to try to, to go after these problems. That's not to say that all this personalization stuff isn't motivated by, by and, and privacy uh, is motivated by money. That is, of course, um, because that is the business model. But what I want to just say about politics, and the stuff that we're talking about right here, that I, I'm, I'm convinced that if they, I, if they could, I think they've thought seriously, I know they've thought seriously about not having any political advertising at all, right, for example. Um, and it's not because of the, I mean, in terms of the amount of money that if they banned political advertising on Facebook, it would, you wouldn't even notice it in the bottom line because it's such a small, small share of what they do. Um, so so I, I think that they have, and there are, uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people in Silicon Valley who have not slept since the 2016 election because all they're thinking about is the Russians, right? And so they, they are um, acutely aware of this and they are trying to figure it out. Now, this problem is a big problem, right? If you're talking about critical thinking online, if you're talking about trying to distinguish between what is true and what is false and how you try to operationalize that, if you're trying to think about whether you should give people what they want as opposed to alternative viewpoints, these are just fraught sort of uh, ethical and, and, and social problems. Now, I'm not trying to get them off the hook. They, after all, they took rubles after all, right? You know, and, and, um, and, and so they are, they are, you know, especially when it comes to foreign intervention, you know, they, they drop the ball. They know that there's more that they can do. Uh, and, you know, the problem is, as with all these things, we're going to end up fighting the last war as opposed to the ones that are coming down. I'll give you an example, right? The, the, you know, a lot of talk about these so-called deep fakes, which are the, the next generation in video manipulation. So you think that the problem is, uh, you know, text that, that, is, that is false. Um, now they're trying to confront the problem of what happens when you can essentially artificially create a video so that you can't really, you really can't believe your lying eyes, right? And so how, how, um, how do you do that? And, and, and that's the, and they're, but they're single-minded in, in trying to, to get at this. I don't actually think they need, I mean, I, well, let me say this. I have certainly argued that they should want more regulation. And the reason that they should want more regulation is that these fraught, value-laden, First Amendment, free speech kinds of questions are so difficult 
for them to resolve that you want to put it into the democratic process and let them resolve it. The problem is once you start doing it, as I've tried to do in writing a fake news bill, right? It's very difficult, right? And all of you would be sort of, you know, if we had the White House Office of Information Integrity, you'd be like, well, that's, you know, that's as chilling as, as having it located in Facebook. And so, um, so these are very difficult problems. I don't think that we need, um, I think we need to keep pressuring them, right? And to focus on, on, on what, what we think are the real problems and to, you know, to develop uh, experimentation to, and then that's what they should be doing to try to address it. This is totally from left field, and I acknowledge that. But I'm, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at the title of your, can democracy survive the internet? But do we really have a democracy when we don't have an electoral vote that represents who wins? And that sort of, that, I keep thinking that as I look at the title of yeah. your speech, and I think it sort of comes before who gets manipulated on the internet is, does your vote really count if you live in certain places? So there's uh, that problem, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's a constitutional one, right? Um, but but I, I didn't actually just limit it to can U.S. democracy survive the internet. There's a problem with democracy. And, and the irony, I mean, I, I didn't mention this explicitly, but in some ways it's the most democratic features of the internet that are the ones that are threatening democracy, right? It's this unmediated... Uh, 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 communication system that, that's predicated on volume and virality and, and velocity, that is ironically the thing that, that is, is posing the greatest challenge. So, I, th so what you're asking me about is actually my whole other area of work. I do work on election administration and voting rights and redistricting and, and, and uh, the Electoral College, right? And so I don't think the Electoral College is going to change anytime soon, um, um, but, but have at it. Sure. Uh, I, I had a, a similar question about you know, my, my own suspicions that those 80,000 or 100,000 people in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin yeah. are Facebook users, or really the, they were just exposed to a magnification of the absurdity through reporting by mainstream media. So I also wondered what it was, uh, its effect was, on, real effect in, in yeah. the last election. But I, you know, the larger question, maybe going back to what Roger was mentioning, for me, my concern about these platforms, and it's the, the ultimate irony in terms of these, this um, explosion of self-publication possibilities that these initial platforms minimized the, the um, not the veracity, but the amount of the message. Twitter, Facebook, it, it, was a, it only allowed for simplification. And so we've seen this kind of diminution of complexity in the, in the means of our communication. You, can, you can't really compare any of these platforms to the Federalist Papers and the kind of content that yeah. was expressed in the Federalist Papers. Now that was intended for a, a very actually limited audience, but um, when we're thinking about education and when we're thinking about how to modify our platforms, how do we, you know, we can applaud that these platforms are now coming around to morality, um, the morality of private regulation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Tom Friedman came through, and I think it was Tom who, gave, who showed this chart of the pace of technological advancement and the pace of our ability to adapt, and we are now lagging. And he said since 2006, we're lagging more than we ever have. So it's ho I find it hopeful that we're coming around within two or three years um, to addressing these harder issues like morality of regulating speech. But I wonder how else we can support, uh, not just in the educational world, but, but in, in the larger community, this value for complexity in general and, and its importance for a democracy that really is, is exercised with meaning. So that, that is also 
one of these arguments that, I mean, that, that greeted the advent of the radio and, and television, right? With each new technology, there is that argument. If you think about the way we used to talk about TV and the dumbing down, with 30-second ads, right? Oh, my gosh, weren't they manipulative? And now it's a banner ad or some, some, some quick thing you, you, you view on Facebook. So this, this aspect of the reduction of our um, political conversation based on, on the soundbiteishness of, of ads and, and political communication is not new. Um, but let's, let's also recognize that we have more information at our fingertips than at any point in human history, right? And so you have a capability, an ability to find out, if you want to, the truth, however we define it, uh, of, on almost any political issue and, and political or social medical issue um, than at any point in, in time, right? And the question is, well, what tools, as you said, can we develop to enable people to go on that search as opposed to having it fed to them? One last question from Maureen. I, actually, I'm, this is almost on the heels of what you just asked. It seems to me, in listening to everything, it, it's almost as though technology is going so quickly and so fast that law and regulation is having a hard time keeping up with it. Yes. And, 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 and <laughs> not only, well, let me also say that it's not clear that um, we can develop laws that will uh, harness the sort of the pace of technology. Let me give you an example. So the, so the Honest Ads Act, which actually Zuckerberg endorsed when he was before Congress, this was a, 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 a law that's now been proposed to try to regulate disclosure of political advertising. Seems like a very sensible law. You have sort of uh, disclosure of um, all the ads that were in a campaign and the like, and they'll have a library of them where you can look online, and you'll have information about the targeting and the like. And it's, it's an effort to take the laws that we have for television and apply them to online advertising. It makes perfect sense. However, when you start realizing the way that political advertising is done online, there are certain features that just don't translate. I'll give you an example. Um, you think, well, there's this thing called a political advertisement that we can now develop libraries of. The Trump campaign, for example, would have sometimes 100,000 variations on a political ad, some that they themselves were not um, uh, doing, right? It was the computer that was varying the, 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 the ad in order to target uh, particular populations. And so if we have this library of political ads, it's almost unusable because you can't really sift through it. The second is the targeting information. You think, based on you know, sort of normal ad targeting, that the kind of targeting you, you're getting is, all right, well, so suburban white women between the ages of 30 and 50 or something is the way these ads are delivered. Sometimes that's true. But now what, you do, what, what all the sophisticated folks do is you give a list of email addresses to the platforms who then construct a custom audience for you. Now, you're not, we're not, based on these privacy concerns you all have raised, we're not going to have disclosure of all the private email addresses of everybody, right? And you can't define that group of people in the same way that we did sort of these, with these normal metrics. So you're right, it's extremely challenging for the law to keep up. That's just one example, but you look at these, what the German law is, is trying to do or the other laws in, uh, outside the US, and they're, they are, what they're trying to do is say, all right, we're going to punish the platforms. You guys solve it. Right? We don't have the answers, but you guys solve it. And if you don't, uh, you're going to get fined. Let's thank Nate. Thank